long passage of text, uh, the, but we're going to break it up a little bit. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, and probably well-meaning, say something like, I wish we could return back to the early church, or I wish we could be like the early church? Anybody ever hear something like that? Yes, we've probably, if you've been in the church for, for a while, you've probably heard, we should be like the early church. And usually, I think what they're meaning is they're looking at the book of Acts, and what they, what they see is they see a, a, a very young and innocent church, one that is preaching the gospel and people are being saved, one that is doing, uh, praying and miracles are happening, one that is, seems to be unencumbered by uh, complex bureaucracy. It's a very simple church, um, though I do want to make sure it's... The, the, sometimes they even, perhaps some people even think that it's almost a leaderless church, though it's not, but it's a very simple church. There's not a lot of bureaucracy. There's not a lot of uh, um, hierarchy going on in the church. It's simple. We're meeting in homes. We don't have buildings. They, they tend to think of that idea in, uh, we, I wish we could return to that I agree in many cases. I would love to be able to return to a place where we're seeing, after a sermon, 3,000 people coming to Christ. Oh, wait, I mean 5,000. Or man, just a bunch of people. We share the gospel and a whole bunch of people come to Christ. I would love to do that. I would love that when we pray for people, we see miraculous signs and wonders going on and people being healed and all sorts of great things. I would love to see that. I fear, however, oftentimes we might have a romanticized version of the early church. Because while all of those things are true, they are not true in isolation. They are not true in and of themselves. They are true in conjunction with a lot of difficulty and trial. So Luke seems to present to us a church that is victorious, a church that is sharing the gospel. The Spirit of God is um, bringing people into the kingdom. The Spirit of God is healing the lame and uh, causing people who are blind to see and the lame to walk and all of these things. These are great, miraculous things. And at the same time, he puts forth that there is a persistent attempt to disrupt the work of God. He kind of presents it as two train tracks, if you will. On the one train track, and they're both going in the same direction. On the one side, we see the glories and the victories of the early church. And on the other side, we see threats and obstacles facing the early church. And in our text today, we're going to see both of those things. We're going to see the glories and victories. We're also going to see threats and obstacles. Let me give you just a general idea of this underlying theme that we've been seeing, at least in regards uh, to the threats and the obstacles that are facing the early church. It began in Acts chapter 2. What happened? The Spirit of God fell and be people began to speak in other languages and they were declaring the praises and the glory and the, and the majesty of God and people were coming to the Lord. But it was not without resistance. People began to mock the Christians. Oh, these Galileans, which by the way was not necessarily a term of endearment, but rather um, one of mocking and belittling. These Galileans, they must be drunk. And they begin by mocking. And then in Acts chapter 4, we see an arrest of the key leaders. We see Peter and John arrested for um, 
their preaching of the gospel and the healing of a lame man. And then we see not only external threats, but we see an in- internal threat with, uh, as Charlie spoke on a couple weeks ago, this internal threat of hypocrisy, um, threatening to divide the church. And we see that in Acts chapter 5. Um, today we're going to see a threat in the, in the sense of all of the disciples are arrested. And then we're going to see a physical beating at, when we come into our uh, upcoming weeks, we'll see another in- internal threat as there is another threat of, of dividing the church between the Hellenists and the Jews. And I'll explain that when we get there. Um, so come back and I'll explain what that means. And then ultimately, this all culminates in the stoning and death of Stephen. So we see at, at the same time, we see all of these glories and victories. And at the same time, we see these threats and persecutions. In other words, God's work persists and goes on and is able to overcome all of these obstacles. Even the death of Stephen is overcome by the glories and powers of God. And so there is this attempt to undermine the work of God but God overrules these feeble attempts to destroy his church and his plan. And I hope perhaps we can begin to see, um, you know, even in, in this church, we, we go and, and we, there are some great victories and there are, some great, there are some wonderful things that go on. And yet we encounter obstacles and struggles. And I want us to understand that these obstacles and struggles are real. They actually happen. And yet God is able to overcome any disruption, and any obstacle that might come our way. So let's read our text this morning. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, and then let's see where we end up. Verse 17, listen to the word of the Lord. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found none inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain of the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And this ends the reading of God's inerrant word. So we begin with, I just want to begin with the arrest. And you'll note here how the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and being filled with jealousy, the apostles' popularity, their popularity came through their preaching. It came through their, um, their per- performing of signs and wonders. And this popularity of preaching and signs continued um, in really disregard of what the Sadducees and the religious leaders had prohibited. The the Sadducees and the religious leaders said, no longer preach in this name. And what did these guys go out and do? 
they turn around and go out and preach in the, the name of Jesus Christ. And, and they're performing signs and people are finding favor and having favor with the apostles. And Sadducees rise up in jealousy over the, I guess, the, the popularity of the apostles. In other words, the gospel tends to be a major irritant and threat to the authorities. There is no doubt a sense of loss of power and disruption of the favor that they have with Rome. So we should not be surprised. I think that this is fairly normative, that that the gospel can be an irritant to the unredeemed. Because we're going to see that throughout the book of Acts, that men and women proclaiming the gospel are opposed for the message that they are proclaiming. It is natural that the unregenerate individual will resist the proclamation of the gospel. And as a result, any great sign or wonder that is done, they will seek to diminish or they will seek to somehow um, minimize. And so the, the Sadducees here sense this loss of power and disruption of the favor that they have with Rome. Folks, we should not be, be discouraged when we share the gospel with people and we meet resistance because the Sadducees desired a favor with Rome. They desired favor with the world. And we'll see that in just a little bit. And the gospel threatens their security in that. So what do they do? They put the, the, the apostles, and this is interesting, because it, they arrested the apostles. And later we're going to see that it's all the apostles. So do you see an increase in the threat? Be in, chapter, um, in chapter 4, it was Peter and John who were arrested. Now it's going to be all the apostles. And so we see this increasing antagonism uh, towards those who are proclaiming the gospel. And it says that they put them in public prison. This is a natural response to the proclamation of the gospel. The, the unregenerate person will seek to silence the gospel and shame those who are preaching it because this is very interesting to note that this is a public prison and there is... Uh, quite a bit of external evidence that would inform us that this wasn't just a prison off in some dungeon somewhere, but rather a prison where um, this was a public shaming. Look at those people. It was a place where you might mock. I don't know. I think about what kind of pilgrim days where they put somebody in, out in public and they put them in the stocks and their hands and their head are there and people would walk by and mock the people. This was a mocking This was purposely designed to mock those who were faithful to the word of God. So two things are going on here. The first one is to silence them, put them in prison and threaten them not to speak any longer. And the second thing was to silence them through shame and mocking. It is visible and it was designed to make a point. The intent, again, is to silence the gospel and dissuade others from joining But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. I love this. First of all, it's a really cool miracle. Second of all, I I like how God kind of jabs at people. And I think Luke notes this because it's a little bit of a jab to to the Sadducees. Because remember, one of the characteristics of a Sadducee, they don't believe in angels. 
Just my own, I don't know, maybe it has no bearing on this message whatsoever. But I think it's interesting that Luke, kind of with a wink, and an angel, the Sadducees put him in public prison, and an angel, wink, wink, is the one who overturned their sentence, or at least was the messenger who set them free. And the angel communicates to them the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord is this, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple and they did just that. I want to camp a little bit on this idea of all the words of this life, because it's a rather unique phrase in, in Scripture, all the words of this life. It certainly reminds me of John chapter 6, uh, verse 68. One of my favorite passages of text, and I say that just about every time I read a scripture, I say this is one of my favorites. But this really is. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom well shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, we see this. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. We see then also over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, we read this. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. I guess my point in reading all of these passages of text is to distinguish that what the disciples are teaching, this life is distinct from biological life. Are you with me? Biological life. In other words, we all have biological life. Everybody in here, we are living, breathing human people. We all share in biological life. What is being distinguished here is, since everybody has a, this is this life. This life that comes through Jesus Christ. It is the life of God to his people that comes about through Jesus Christ. It is distinct from biological life. It is living that unique life that God provides through his people. So here's what I want you to do. I'm busting you out of jail. And I need you to go and talk about not biological life, not how we're all people who are living and breathing and just regular folks. I want, I'm busting you out and I want you to go and talk about this life, this life that is in the Son of God, this life that is found through the gospel of Jesus Christ, this life that is found from being born again, renewed, hearing the gospel, repenting of your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved. That's the life I'm calling you to go and proclaim. It is the life that only comes from God. It is, basically, we could say, I want you to go and proclaim the gospel. So get up. I'm busting you out. Now go and preach the gospel. The next thing I think we should spend a little bit of time on is this issue of all the words of this life. I'm busting you out. Now go and speak all of the words of this life. This is a command by God to declare a complete gospel. We have no mandate for an incomplete or truncated message. We are not. We are heralds. And we proclaim the message given to us. We are not editors. Make no mistake. We have no authority whatsoever to edit God's word. We are to preach it all. We have no mandate, as I said, for an incomplete message. And we are not authorized 
as editors to the message of God. As heralds, we proclaim. The idea of the gospel itself has in it the very idea of one who goes forth and proclaims a message, usually a message declared by the king. Oftentimes what would happen is a king would have a child and then would send servants throughout his kingdom to declare to all of his realm the good news of this child being born to the king. These heralds, these proclaimers, these messengers had no authority whatsoever to alter the message of the king. They were simply to go from town to town to town and declare what the king had commanded them to declare. All the message of this life. In this sense, we might even say this is a prophetic message because the prophets in the Old Testament did not edit God's word. They did not alter God's word. They simply proclaimed all that God told them to speak. And you and I have God's message and we are to declare all of the message of, the, of this life. And we are not authorized to alter it. A gospel, so, and we tend to have at least two extremes. We could probably go forth and, and talk about all of the various um, errors that can be found in gospel presentations, but I'll, I'll list two extremes. And the first one is that a gospel devoid of sin is no gospel. A gospel devoid of sin is no gospel. And so as we seek to appease our audience by not talking about the bad news, we do not have that authority. That is not our calling. We are not editors. We need to talk about the, what God saved us from. We talk about Jesus saves. Well, then that begs the question, doesn't it? What did he save me from? And I often say, be saved from something means it means to be rescued. It means that there's something bad happening, right? Often said, I have never been saved from a nice dinner with my wife. Never. That's an interruption. Being saved from something speaks of I am in peril. There is a negative consequence about to happen to me, and I am being rescued out of it. We Jesus saves. There is a peril. The peril is this that we are by nature children of wrath, enemies of God, but God being rich in mercy saves us by his Son. The other extreme that one might fall into is that a gospel devoid of salvation by the finished work of, God, of Christ alone is no gospel. A gospel devoid of salvation by the finished work of Christ is no gospel. That is, I can have a friendly relationship with God Almighty because I'm a nice person. And unfortunately, we have made the gospel about being nice and being kind. I hope you are nice and I hope you are kind. Just don't think that that necessarily buys favor with God because our works will never save us. They never will. We are to preach and proclaim the words of this life, that is, the life that is found through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and we are to proclaim all of it. And so the words of this life include the holiness of God, that there is a God who is perfectly holy and just, and we have fallen short of that holy God. He has loved us, and yet we have sinned against that God. Every single one of us have rebelled against a holy God. There's not one person in here who has not rebelled against God in some way or another. We call that sin. And so we are all sinful. And here's the bad news. 
The wages of sin is death, and this is eternal death. This is not temporal death that you just die and then you never you cease to exist. This is eternal death. The wages of sin is death because God is a holy God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus' his Son. We are to proclaim all of these the words of this life. There is a God and he has created you and made you. We have rebelled against him. As a result, we will face the very wrath and judgment of God. But Christ Jesus bore that wrath, bore that judgment in his body on the tree so that all who are in him will never face that wrath and will never face that judgment. And so I will implore you this day, if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, if you've never called upon the name of the Lord, I'm going to implore you, I will beg you, Today's the day of salvation. I pray that the Spirit of God is moving upon your heart and you will confess your sins and call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You will be saved. There are a lot of things about the Bible I don't fully understand. Here's what I do fully and completely and clearly understand, that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. One of the things I find interesting about this command to get up and go and speak to all the people all the words of this life, what I find interesting is what's not commanded. What's not commanded. There is no mention of talk about this great miracle that saved you. Because I don't know if it were me, I'd go, oh man, I was in jail last night. The craziest, most unusual thing, I'm just sitting there minding my own business, figuring I'm going to be on trial in a couple of hours. And the next thing I know, man, I'm being busted out by this angelic being. You should have been there. It was awesome. And I guarantee you that would have been a really cool story. That's not the command. Tell them the gospel. Tell them all the words of this life. Not how I busted you out of prison. Tell them all the words. And that's what they do. They go out and they start proclaiming all of the words of this life. Not like, man, you should have been there. It was awesome. One of the things I find interesting is the value of this message. It's interesting that we should note that the importance of the message that they are to proclaim is revealed by the extraordinary measures taken to make it known. So that's a really long sentence. The importance of the message can be seen by the extraordinary means that God took to make it known. I want you to proclaim the gospel. And I don't care if you're in jail. Jail's not a hindrance to the almighty God. Public humiliation doesn't hinder my work one bit. I will rescue my people. I will take extraordinary measures, whatever those measures may be, and I will bring my people out to to proclaim a message of all the words of this life. Sometimes people might ask or look at this passage of text, and one of the challenges that we have when we go through uh, the book of Acts is asking this question. Is this normative or is this just descriptive? What I mean by that is, let me break it down this way. Are jailbreaks normative? In other words, if I get in prison for speaking or sharing the gospel, is it, should it be my understanding that God must break me out of jail. Is it normative? Because there's a couple jailbreaks in the book of Acts. This is just the first one. There'll be more. Jailbreaks are not to be seen as normative. Here's what is normative. The The extreme measures God takes to ensure his gospel message is declared to a lost and dying people. Let me give you a great example of the extreme. Well, first of all, let me give you an example of an individual who was not broken out of jail. First of all, your brothers and sisters right now are languishing in prison all around the world. God is not breaking them out of jail. 
I'm not saying that God is failing. I'm saying that the gospel is going forth. And one of the great examples of this is Richard Wormbrand, who was in a Romanian prison for 14 years in solitary confinement, did not see the light of day for 14 years. God never broke him out. And yet through him, many of his torturers came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and many of the people who were unbelievers who were in prison with him came to know their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel message is so valuable that God will take extreme measures to make sure that it is declared. Let me give you another interesting example. The extreme measures that God takes to declare his gospel, his saving message, the words of this life to a lost and dying people, a man by the name of Heinrich Gericke. You may have never heard of him. An American Lutheran pastor who was called just minding his own business. But he happened to know German and be fluent in German. And at the end of World War II, as the Nazi war criminals went on trial, they called a chaplain. They called for a chaplain. And Henry Gericke, because he knew German, was called to go and proclaim the gospel to perhaps some of the most vilest men who have ever lived on and walked the face of this earth. And he shared the gospel. He shared the gospel. When you think of the big names within the Nazi regime, Henry went and shared the gospel with these men. Are you kidding me? God, the, that, the message is so valuable that he will call an American Lutheran pastor over to Germany into perhaps one of the most the most, what we would say, the most undeserving people who have ever walked the face of this earth. And I'm going to share the gospel with them. Many of them came to know their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they repented of their sins. And I tell you right now, as gross and heinous as their sins were, on the day that they were hanged, they heard, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome into your rest. God spares nothing. There were many men that Henry went to and they did not. They mocked him and they scorned him and they were proud of what they did and they are this day separated from God for eternity. But God sent a messenger to rescue them and he's proclaimed to them all the words of this life. The value of the message is seen by the extreme measures that God will take to make it known. And the extreme measures here is that God breaks men out of prison and puts them right back in the place where they got arrested and said, keep going. And God may take you and put you into all sorts of crazy places because the message of the gospel, life-saving gospel, is of such value that he will, that nothing will hinder that gospel going forth. And God has a long history of saving rebels. I put a few in your notes. He saved Adam after, after Adam's treachery. Adam received atonement for his sins and he responded in faith. Seth began to call upon the name of the Lord. Noah believed God and it was declared the way of salvation. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And all the way through history, God has been seeking rebels. God has been atoning for their sins and God is calling them to convey the message of God to others. That is, God saves a man or saves a woman and then calls them to proclaim the message to somebody else. And eventually, that gospel came to you. If you are here today, it is because somebody got saved a long time ago and passed it on to somebody else and passed it on to somebody else and passed it on to somebody else. And it came to you and you repented of your sins and you called upon the name of the Lord. And now the mandate is go tell, take it to somebody else. It does not stop with you. If you are an unbeliever today, the gospel has come to you. And God has taken extraordinary means get you in this church this morning to hear a gospel message.
The most extreme measure that God took was that through His Son, Jesus Christ, He put on flesh and dwelt among us, died for our sins, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven and is coming again. Talk about extreme measures. Talk about a picture of the value of the message that God puts on flesh, humbles Himself, dies at the hands of sinful men, overcomes death, and is coming again. Should give us a little bit of idea of the value of the message. So go and proclaim all the words of this life. The goal of the, the, the goal of the Sadducees was to silence the gospel by sentencing the apostles to jail. God overturns that sentence and commands them to speak all the words of this life. I sentence you to public prison, and God says, nope, I'm overturning that sentence. You're out of prison, and you're doing what I call you to do. Well, they get rearrested, and of course, everybody's perplexed. The disciples can't be found, even though everything appeared secure. In other words, I don't think, even think the guards knew what happened. Somehow, the, the disciples translated out of there or walked through their midst. I'm not quite sure how all of that happened, but the guards are sitting there standing guard thinking everything is fine, and all of a sudden they realize their jail cell is empty. Fortunately, the prisoners had got, not gone far. They are teaching, and this is a major theme in the book of Acts, and it's a major theme in this section. In fact, if you have time, because I know you all have so much free time, go through this passage of text and just look at all the times teaching and preaching is, is mentioned. It's everywhere. They're not behaving like fugitives. They are utterly and completely unashamed. And this stands in great contrast to the Sadducees and the religious leaders because they went and got the, the disciples. They did not, get, they did not take them for, by force because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. There is a fear of men and there is a fear of God. The Sadducees perceived man as ultimate and they feared men. They feared Rome. They wanted to keep their lifestyles the way it was. They wanted to keep the rulers happy. They wanted to continue their earthly and temporal focus. They were willing to lose their souls but gain the world. But I ask, what profit is that? The apostles, on the other hand, realize that God is ultimate, not us. Not our comfort and not anything we have. And their commission came from above. They believed truly that Jesus had all authority in heaven and earth and that he was with them always. This is the triumph of the gospel. That the mission is dependent not on them but on God. And it's still the same. The gospel goes forth not because we are able to do anything of great value or anything um, of great worth, but because we serve a God who overcomes every single obstacle that might be presented and the gospel goes forth and the gospel triumphs. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. Well, and the gospel brings life because it is God's gospel. So I'll close with this. In the very earliest days, the plan of God was to save his people. That plan is threatened. The plan of God to save his people is threatened by external threats like beatings, humiliation, imprisonment, internal threats like division. God is completely unfazed by those threats. Threats imposed by the forces of hell or the schemes of men do not phase God Almighty. This should give us a couple of takeaways. First of all, hopefully it will spur us on to a diligence. A diligence to proclaim all the words of this life no matter what. There are going to be obstacles and there are going to be threats and there are going to be challenges in front of us. There's a myriad of different ways that the gospel is threatened, but we can be diligent and persevere because none of them, none of them are greater than God Almighty. So we can be confident. We can be confident when I say I'm going to serve God with all of my heart. I'm going to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to do the thing that God has called. And the first thing that happens in our mind is you start thinking of all the reasons why your plans and your desires to serve God will fail. And I'm here to tell you that God overcomes all of those obstacles. 
Let's be obedient like the disciples. Follow after them. Realize that God is ultimate, not us. And that we would be faithful to remember and proclaim all the words of this life. Let's stand and pray.